Welcome to a special presentation of Nebraska Farmcast, a podcast with essential information for essential decisions from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The Nebraska Extension Farm and Ranch Management Team in the Department of Agricultural Economics is dedicated to providing timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications for Nebraska agricultural decision makers. Each week, our team brings you essential information for your essential decisions in live webinars covering a diverse array of farm and ranch management topics presented by experts from the university, from across the state, and from around the country. This series of podcasts offers audio from these webinars so you can learn on the go. To find a complete archive of all webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more resources, visit the Farm and Ranch Management website at farm.unl.edu. My name is Jim Jansen. I work as an agricultural economist with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We have Austin Durfeld. Uh, he's also an ag economist that works in eastern Nebraska with me. Austin, if you want to wave right now, I know you're muted. And then uh, we also have Alan Vanalik, who works on farmland succession and transition-related matters here at the University of Nebraska. Uh, just wave there. And uh, we also have Ryan Evans, who's helping us on the technology side. And uh, if there's any issues or whatever, he'll hopefully help us to be able to troubleshoot them. So with that being said, um, each year, Alan, Austin, and I tend to do what we refer to as a pilot series for our land management program. And we call it a pilot because we're uh, trying to change up the topics every year, topics that reflect what the demands are from the clientele. And with that being said, the uh, topics for this year are a little bit different than the prior years. And we're gonna be looking for feedback today throughout our presentation. We have uh, three short questions to see if the topics we're talking on are relevant and hopefully you're getting something out of it. So be sure to provide feedback. And uh, with that being said, we'll go ahead and get started and uh, see here if it'll advance for me. Okay, why don't you go ahead and advance the slide, Al? It's not working again. There we go. I'll just say next, Al, when it's time. Uh, okay, so a little bit about um, our overview of our brief program today. Uh, we're shooting for about 90 minutes. We might go a little bit shorter than that, but basically we have three uh, primary topics. First topic I will be visiting with everyone on is on the topic of cash rental rates and flex leases. Alan's topic will be talking on the, the communication issues that landlords, tenants, agribusiness professionals may have. And then also on the topic of farm succession and planning. With COVID-19, a lot of folks, especially if you're in advanced age or a state of health that may not be the best, COVID may force us to reevaluate some of our plans. And then Austin, um, given our current situation with commodity prices, primarily for crops and maybe to a lesser extent livestock, um, you know, what programs are out there to help land managers, whether you're an operator on the land or uh, someone that's looking to say cost share on rebuilding a terrace or doing some dirt work, uh, what's out there? And Austin kind of is giving us a taste. Today's presentation is a shortened form of our three hour presentation that we traditionally run. After this presentation is over, Austin, Alan, and I will each be recording a full length presentation that when the, you get a reminder email sent out that this presentation has been recorded and is up online, uh, take a look at that website 
and uh, you should be able to find additional detail. You'll see in my slides as well as the other two, we don't go as deep as we'd like to, but we got to keep in mind this is kind of a noontime webinar, so we want to keep it in a fairly timely manner. Okay, we'll go ahead to the next slide here. Uh, my name is Jim Jansen, and uh, I explained what I do here at the New University of Nebraska, and Jeffrey Stokes is our endowed chair of ag finance. We uh, co-lead the efforts related to farm real estate and uh, cash rents. And uh, we'll be highlighting some of those in the first part of my slides here. So on the next slide, we'll see uh, a little bit on the farm real estate survey. It's an annual survey that's been conducted since 1978 of agribusiness professionals, including farm and ranch managers, ag bankers, uh, agricultural appraisers, people that put a value on a property. And uh, we do two things. And the second week of March, we traditionally release what is referred to as a preliminary estimates. And the final report is released in June. The final report has additional detail beyond the preliminary estimates. The highlights of what we'll be talking on today come from the uh, full report. And to access this information, um, the website link is given right here. It's agecon.unl.edu backslash real estate. Uh, we have our current year's report in addition to historically archived reports. I believe we have everything back to 1978 up online since the inception of the report. With that being said, um, we're on the next slide here and we can take a look at the state of Nebraska. And uh, we have 93 different counties. And if you just want to hold your uh, cursor still, Al, that it's kind of messes with the screen. Uh, we got 93 different counties here, and what we do is we divide the state into eight different regions. These regions share similar production attributes. And with that being said, um, these eight regions divide the state, and uh, we're broadcasting today out of Lancaster County, which is located in the East District, uh, the kind of the central east portion of the state. And the way we summarize all of our information will be based upon these districts. So we'll go ahead on to the next slide here. And uh, let's talk briefly on the cash rental rates. And I'll provide a summary of what we were able to obtain from the 2020 production year. At the most basic level, we have uh, the 2020 rates, uh, eight different regions of the state. Keeping in mind, this survey was conducted basically from early January through roughly early March of this past year prior to the pandemic events surrounding COVID-19. That being said, there has been calls, uh, various people that Austin, Allen, or I have talked to. Some folks are revisiting their cash rents, maybe backing them down to reflect the fact that, you know, with the disruptions in trade or whatever, um, disruptions in trade caused by COVID, that maybe we're gonna back the cash rents down a little bit. But what, according to what was reported on the prior slide here, um, We've seen uh, average cash rental rates, you know, around that two to 5% range. We did note in the Southwest a slight decline, but overall uh, we noted fairly steady. Okay, on the next slide here, we have a breakdown on the cash rental rates uh, by region again, but also in addition to by region, we also have um, what we refer to as HAL, which is an average of the high grade, average of the low grade, and an average of all the responses. And what is meant by that is, uh, let's look at the East District, for example. The average of the low grade, what is referred to by that, is the idea that um, 
if you took the lower third of cash rents, that is the low third grade. And if you take the upper third of cash rents in the East District, for example, the upper third of cash rents was 235, low third grade was 165, and an average for the area was 205. So with all that being said, um, there's quite a range across the state, but I think a lot of folks kind of know, you know, in the Eastern part of the state, the closer you get to Iowa, you tend to get a little bit more rain, the ground's a little bit darker, uh, a little bit more favorable circumstances. And there are also other counties, uh, Platte County, Cumming County, very uh, robust areas that stand, tend to stand out. So that's something that gives an impact on all of the uh, different cash rental rates that are reported on this slide. So we'll move on to the next slide here and uh, talk briefly on the irrigated cash rents. We'll go ahead and move to the next one here. And uh, what we're seeing here, on um, the irrigated cash rents for 2020, uh, they're fairly similar to the dry land with respects to the percent change. Noted a few areas, Eastern Nebraska were down 2%. Yeah, keep in mind the Eastern District is the second highest in the state relative to the other areas of the state. We also have the, the Western uh, Northwest, we noted down slightly. Uh, we had issues being reported related to specialty crop production. There were some concerns according to the survey responses that were coming in, especially crops or some of the uh, growing on some of the irrigated acres out in that area of the state. But overall the state, the rest of the state, uh, mostly steady. And uh, we'll see on the next slide here that uh, in addition to the average, we have an average of the high third, average of the low third, and average of all the responses. And the thing to note on the, um, the thing to note with respect to these slides is in addition to the high third and the low third, uh, on the irrigated cash rent, this reflects the uh, landlord owning the entire irrigation system. The pivot, the pump, the power unit, um, you know, landlords paying for things like insurance on the pivot if insurance is being covered or carried. All these things are being provided by the landlord. If you have a situation where an operator or a tenant provides one of these different components, uh, under that case, that would be a situation where you back the cash rent down. Why? Because if the landlord's providing those things, that's another expense that the landlord does not have to cover. So that's why we want to form equitable rates. Question commonly comes up, who's responsible for upkeep on the irrigation system? Uh, a lot of the time we tend to see it's a mutual deal where the operator or, or land tenant may be willing to do basic upkeep. Landlord pays for the bigger things. If you have a power unit go out or a, you know serious upgrades, but uh, you know, basic maintenance, maybe the tenant covers part of that. But the thing to recognize is when tenants are doing work on the system, that's worth a lot to a landlord. Why? It helps preserve the system. And two irrigation companies, when they come out, a service call can you know, start adding up. So be aware of that. Okay, we'll uh, move on to here. And uh, finally, the third major land class we're gonna talk about is uh, pasture rents as well as cow-calf pair rents. And with respects to the pasture rents, uh, here we have a breakdown under the per acre estimates. When we talk about grazing land in Nebraska, there's two different ways we commonly see properties rented across the state. I'm just gonna highlight the per acre average. I'm not gonna break the range down, 
but we do have additional detail if you dig into our real estate report as well as my full recording for this session will eventually be posted online. I'll dig a little deeper in, in that. But uh, we see a pretty good breakdown. This breakdown on cash rents reflect one, the competitive nature, but two more importantly, uh, you know, how many acres does it take for one cow-calf pair in Northwest Nebraska versus Northeast Nebraska? We've seen rates were fairly steady to even higher across the state. And on the next slide here, I believe we're gonna see uh, uh, a breakdown, uh, another way that we report this. So for one cow, for one calf, for one month during the summer grazing season, uh, we have the monthly rate reported. So if you got, uh, let's look at uh, the East District. Let's just say for an easy example, hopefully people can follow in their mind. The average is, let's say $50 a pair per month. Well, if you're grazing for five months, 50 times five is 250. So 250 for one cow, one calf during the summer grazing season. The question always comes up, who's responsible for fencing, weed control, uh, paying the power bill if there's an electrical service out on the site for pumping a water into a, a livestock watering tank? Everything's negotiable. The thing I would tell you is if the land tenant is paying that $300 a year service fee hookup, it's one less expense the landlord has to pay so maybe you would back the rent down a few dollars a pair per month to account for that. Uh, fencing materials, Alan and I have always said major fencing materials, and I'm not talking about just like one T-post that got knocked out in a fence, but an entire quarter mile of fencing. Under that case, uh, that would be a landlord expense. Now, if the tenant is willing to provide the time of putting those things in, I would highly encourage you to uh, Consider that maybe you take off $10 a pair per month or something to that effect. So this kind of gave a pretty good breakdown on the cash rental rates. And um, there's been a few questions coming in and I've been kind of monitoring them as I've been going along. But uh, just to clarify this for everyone, the slides that we're going through today, uh, in addition to the recording, we can definitely post those online and uh, Ryan will take care of getting that up after we're over. Okay, so switching topics here, kind of the second part of my presentation. And as I said before, if you want the full, the full blown uh, deal on what's happening in real estate with respects to just not cash rents, but land values, you gotta come find us online. And I got some really good material on current state of property taxes, uh, some of the new legislation that's happened related to property taxes, the state income tax credit, we're gonna be able to be getting on our uh, state of Nebraska income tax return for property tax relief. Uh, I got some additional detail on that. So, all right, on the topic that uh, the prior slide had up there was on alternative leases. And just hold on out, we don't wanna skip through these slides so fast this time. On the topic of alternative farmland leases, there's different ways to rent land. One, we can rent it via cash. Two, we could rent it via crop share. Or three, we could rent it via uh, flexible lease. And okay, we can move on to the next slide here, Al. Um, with the idea of a flex lease, I think a lot of people would agree it's a little bit of a stab in the dark when you're sitting inside somewhere negotiating cash rent in say February or January or March. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty. Who knows what's going to happen to rainfall? Who knows what's going to happen to crop prices? And there are ways to estimate those, but it's a little bit of an unknown, especially on dry land. Or even if you do have irrigated cropland that yields favorably, 
you know, if the price of corn is only 285 a bushel and you sign that lease with the intention the price of corn was going to be more like three and a half, uh, you know, that's still a challenge that you got to figure out financially. The idea with a flex lease is you're sharing to a degree in the risk associated with the property. Uh, the basic idea is if you compare it to what your base scenario is, your base idea, if performance is better than you expected, more rent is going to be paid. So if the crop yield or price or revenue, depending upon what the flex is based off of, we're going to pay more rent. Now, if crop yield, crop price, or maybe even crop revenue is not as good as we had expected, um, with that being said, under that case, you pay less rent. So it's kind of a give-take relationship here. Now, under appropriate flex lease, you should not have a case where zero rent is going to be paid, and you should not have a case where the cash rent would be allowed to go up to, say, a number like um, – $500 or something. Obviously, that wouldn't be applicable to our situation. That's more like specialty crop production down in the Mississippi Delta or something where they're raising sugar cane or something like that. So that's the basic idea behind a flex lease. And if you want to move on to the next slide here, uh, we'll take a, I, I really like this example. Um, when it comes to a flex lease, let's say we have a case say Alan and I are the landlord and the tenant and we sit down and I, I look at where the current prices are at and I say you know it really only makes sense to pay a hundred and forty dollars an acre but under Alan's case um, he really wanted 210. Maybe we set up a situation where we kind of take the midline ground between the two and when we take the midline ground between the two we settle on a base cash rent of $175 an acre. And we're gonna set up a flexible cash lease. And once again, you know, the, the big three that you can flex off of, crop yield, crop price, or crop revenue. Depending upon what you're gonna flex on would influence how the lease would be set up. Well, let's just say we're gonna be flexing off of crop revenue. And if we're flexing off of crop revenue, we wanna hold, um, let's say we expect that we're gonna have so many hundred in crop revenue, but crop revenue is actually 10% higher than we had anticipated. Under that case, you would pay 10% more in cash rent. So 17 and a half dollars plus 175, that would come out to the new cash rent. If crop revenue was lower than we had expected, we would pay less than 175 an acre. If crop revenue was 10% lower, we would take 10% off the cash rent and it would be 17 and a half off of $175 an acre. The key thing is we talk about the floor and the ceiling. The ceiling is a maximum rent. So I don't care if corn went to $8 a bushel, that's fine. The, what happened to the crop revenue? Maybe if it's $8 a bushel, it was a serious drought like 2012 and you're only raising two bushel per acre. What matters is, is you keep it within our range. The maximum, 210, the minimum, 140. Okay, so that's kind of how that's laid out. Uh, we'll go on to the next slide here. Um, take a look at some additional information. Let's uh, hit the next one here too. Okay, I'm sorry, uh, a lot of information on this slide and if you get into my full presentation, we dig a lot deeper. Well, let's say we have a situation here it's a flex lease. 
it's a variable rent by yield. So how much are we producing? So think back to last spring or think forward to this upcoming spring. We anticipate, uh, you know, we set a base cash rent of $175 an acre. That's in the upper right hand corner on this slide. And historically over the last five years, we raised about 150 bushel per acre of corn on this property. We roll forward to the fall and we didn't raise 150, we actually raised only 140. So that's in the central part of the slide there. And when we only raised 140 bushel per acre, uh, that's 10 bushel per acre lower than we had anticipated. And with it being 10 bushel per acre lower than we anticipated, we actually produced about 6.7% less corn than what we had hoped for. Under this case, I'm doing a perplex lease based on percent change of yield. So if we produce less than 6.7%, we're going to take 6.7%, which is about 12 bucks an acre. Uh, we're going to take about $12 an acre off. So we have our actual rent, uh, our rental rate we had initially agreed upon, 175 an acre. Take off 6.7% or about $12 an acre. Our final rent paid, about 163 an acre. We flexed the lease down to account for a, a lower crop yield than we had anticipated. Okay, if you want to hit it here, Al, we'll uh, go to the next slide. Oh, you skipped ahead a little bit, Al. There we go. Okay, uh, just go ahead one slide here. All right. I got two examples on this slide right here. And there's a lot of information, but we'll spend a couple minutes and try to break it down. We have two scenarios. Scenario one is on the left and scenario two is on the right. Um, under both case, we had an initial cash rent paid on the farm, or we initially had agreed to a base cash rent of $175 per acre as part of a flex lease. We had anticipated when we signed that lease this past March, let's say we anticipated raising 150 bushel per acre we expected the price of corn to be about $3.30 a bushel, okay? Not quite $500 an acre in expected crop revenue. And we have two different situations happening. Situation one on the left-hand side, we have the actual yield of uh, say 140 bushel per acre. Uh, the price, uh, you know, it's a little dry, so maybe the prices are a little bit better than we had anticipated. Under this case, uh, our actual farm income or our revenue per acre, which does not include any of the government payments or crop insurance indemnities, this is our crop revenue yield times price, 540 an acre. Our flex lease where we're flexing off a crop revenue is approximately uh, 540 an acre, which is about $45 an acre. So if you take 540, our actual crop revenue and take that off our initially anticipated crop revenue. We produced about $45 an acre more than we had anticipated. And we hoped to raise, uh, that's about 9% better than crop revenue. So if you take the final, uh, the final base rental rate was 175 an acre. And under this case, we added on $16 an acre. Why? Because we had produced uh, 9% more crop revenue than we had initially anticipated. Now this flex, how high can the cash rent go? Well, under that initial example, we gave several slides back. We don't need to flip back to it, but uh, 
we had initially anticipated we were going to have um, our, our, our ceiling was $210 an acre. Okay, that's a maximum. So that's the highest the rent can go to. On the right hand side, we have a situation over here. I know a lot of people are it's pretty dry this year, but uh, you know, this is a situation where, okay, maybe we had a little bit better crop yield than we had initially anticipated. Instead of raising 150, we raised 165. Prices are down. Cash price was down, $2.85 a bushel. Uh, we produced about $25 an acre less in uh, crop revenue than we had hoped, about 5%. Tran that translates to the bottom right-hand slide, a uh, portion of the table of the slide. That translates to about $9 an acre off, the, uh, 175 off of nine, final cash rents, 166. Once again, what's the minimum cash rental rate? 140. So if we had a really bad situation as price of corn dropped to buck 90, at a minimum, 140 acre would have to be paid. Additional detail on things like what prices should we be using? Um, where should we be finding those prices? I'll give that in my full lecture, but for the sake of time, for having a noontime uh, lecture, we're trying to keep it fairly short. Okay, Al, do you wanna advance to the next one here? Um, Okay, and let's go forward. Um, one thing I wanted to talk a little bit more about, we do do online lectures or webinars, whatever you wanna call them, throughout the um, year. Alan and I co-lead one, it's called Ag Land Management Quarterly. Uh, we're gonna be doing one here in November. My section will be talking briefly on uh, the USDA, not the UNL, but the USDA 2020 cash rents. And where did ARC and PLC payments, where are those at? Did anybody get anything? What, what's going on there? Al's going to be talking about considerations for leases and closing out the lease as part of that. With that being said, uh, Ryan, do you want to go ahead? To a, we are to, towards the end of my section here now, and we had a question that well polling question if you want to go ahead and display that ryan and um this question that we have here is did you get anything out of what you just viewed um you know hopefully it's not none but uh just let me know what you, you're thinking we're going to take a minute here and uh review this quickly and then uh after we get a few responses in and uh, be honest here I mean, take what you want, and um, this is good feedback for us because we really, some of these online webinars, we're, you know, we're, we're learning as we're going, and uh, we really look, look uh, forward to uh, any responses. Ag land management quarterly is a uh, little detail on that as we're waiting for their polling responses to come in. Ag land management quarterly, that uh, webinar is offered once every business quarter. Uh, we had been doing it in the evening, but we moved it to the noontime. It seems like we're just getting better, um, better responses that way. So, and I'm, we're still getting, uh, still surprised how many responses are coming in. I'm going to take a look at the Q&A here for a second. Uh, okay. Uh, I had two questions come in, and I'll just briefly answer these because our polling questions are still coming in. Uh, what percent of land is rented by cash lease? Uh, we actually evaluated that a while back. Um, cash leases, it depends what part of the state you're in. Maybe 10, um, uh, let's see here, in the eastern part of the state, 
little over half, 60, 70. You go out west, it's less than that. 10% uh, of leases are flex leases, and the remainder of the balance are crop shares. And, uh, you know, how do you get people talking about flex leases? Uh, you really got to have a good relationship with the landlord there. If I don't get to your question, send me an email or call me after this is over. I'm more than happy to visit with you. And then question two, is it worth upgrading uh, to a center pivot over a gravity irrigation system? I don't know if there's any programs available. There may have been in the past to help convert that, but um, is it worth it? Yeah, there's some water conservation things there. And I think that might be a good question for Austin section because he has uh, some detail on those. Okay, with that, oh, final question. Is it a good idea to do a multi-year lease? Tenants like to have a multi-year lease because they know they have the ground secured. There's certain things they may do with respects to fertilizer, um, all these things that uh, influence uh, the, how productive the land is. What's the downside of a multi-year lease? Who knows what the crop yield and prices are gonna be for the next three years. If you can tell me that, I'll tell you what the cash rent's gonna be. Obviously, that's a challenging point. So uh, with that, for the sake of time, we gotta keep moving here. I'm gonna monitor the questions and we can keep answering questions once we get towards the end of Austin's. But uh, I will take a look at the chat questions, but I know Alan's rearing to get going here and we wanna make sure We'll stick on and answer questions as long as people need to, but we'll have to hold uh, any more additional questions until we get to the end of, Al uh, end of Austin's slides. So with that, uh, thanks for uh, helping us out here, Al, and I'm gonna go ahead and mute and kill my video until we get to the end of the, the entire presentation. Austin, did you wanna take a stab at that answering that question? I know you came on there for a second, or do you wanna wait to the end? Oh, why don't you go ahead and go and I'll bring it up when I get to that point. Okay, very good. All right, so uh, I've been asked to make some comments here and we call this the lag ag land management section. Um, I, I got like three or four parts here, so I'll just kind of roll through them. Uh, there's my contact information. I threw in my email address here and then at the bottom of the screen is the website that I've been kind of putting my stuff at. Lots of articles there about succession and my full video, uh, two and a half hours of succession lesson is there too. So agicon.unl.edu slash succession is where you can find my stuff uh, in terms of websites. Or if you just go to farm.unl.edu, much easier to remember, farm.unl.edu, go to land management, and you can find my stuff through that link too. So thanks for watching. We appreciate it very much. First comments are going to make about succession. This is not a state planning talk. I'm just going to get you started to think, to think about it. Uh, we're supposed to just, uh, we're supposed to use this to make better efforts for our professionals time. And with global pandemic, it's even more of a reason to get to motivation to get started because uh, if we don't have our succession plan figured out what happens if we have something bad, like end up on a ventilator or something like that, or, or let's not, let's, let's, let's be real in real in rural Nebraska, there are not many cases around of COVID-19. And so it could be any number of things. I mean, we, we've got to understand we still have heart attacks, we still have uh, farm accidents, we still have strokes, we still have all kinds of things happening, and you still still have a succession plan in place. It's not just COVID-19. That's just another motivation to get going. Um, so why don't we get that succession done? Well, farmers don't ever really plan to retire. You, the studies that I've done and studies that Iowa State did, did show that between 50 and 80 percent of farmers don't ever plan to fully retire from farming. 
Uh, they have a hard time getting up patrol. They just don't have other plans. Uh, they've never taken on another hobby. They don't play golf. They don't do woodworking. They don't, they farm. That's what they do. So they, they don't plan to ever get out of the cab if they can help it. Uh, newer equipment makes it easier to continue to, to be true. And that's, that's true. The GPS and all those things that easier ride seats and all that sort of thing, not nearly as hard as the knees it was back in the sixties and seventies when a lot of our, a lot of the guys farming right now got started. However, uh, we don't have to retire. I'm not trying to guilt anybody into that. Please don't. But you haven't, no one has been able to avoid the pine box. So what happens to our stuff? That's the reason you want a succession plan in place because you don't have to retire. I'm not saying that. Just understand that you got to have a plan for what happens to your stuff. What tends to happen is that more often than not, uh, families defer the decision about discussing the future, what's going to happen with the stuff until some critical life event occurs, which forces the family to, to address the matter. And the, the bottom line on that comment is that research study just says, we have to understand that when we are under stress, when some critical life event occurred, grandpa goes over with a heart attack and has no estate plan in place. Now the family has to deal with what's going to happen with all the stuff. Without an estate plan in place, we're under the stress of the, 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 of the death, of the stress of that whole thing. And now we're going to make decisions. I'm not sure that's the best time. The best time is before we have those catastrophic events occur and, and let's get it done uh, in, a, in a reasonable fashion. We don't plan because we assume it's, it's complicated, it's mental work. We don't like to think about death. And, and I'm also discovering that sometimes we're afraid if we make a plan and do something, it's gonna be wrong at some point in time in the future. And I can guarantee you that's an accurate observation. Um, I can make plans right now and five years from now, something could change. Somebody could, there could be a divorce, there could be a death out of order, there could be any number of things that happen to families all the time. And it, what our plans we made today won't necessarily be correct, but I can assure you also that changing a plan, making adjustments to a plan that's already in place is uh, hundreds or maybe a thousand or two dollars uh, to adjust a plan. But if you have no plan and you do it wrong and it gets divided wrong and we don't have to keep a farm in place or a ranch in place, then we're talking tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of mistakes. So please have a plan in place just to avoid there's three types of planning that need to occur at the end of any career. We have to have those end-of-life documents and plans in place. That's the, that's the power of attorneys. That's the healthcare directives, those kind of things. We have to have an estate plan in place. That's the wills, trusts, LLCs, other structures that make the assets go to the next generation or wherever the assets are going. And then if we're lucky enough to have somebody joining us on the farmer ranch, then we have to have a business succession plan kind of put in place too so that can still happen efficiently. And to make any of these things work, good communication is needed. And so that's the critical part of any of this thing. And, and uh, I just visited with a family recently and their biggest problem was they, they didn't do a good job of listening to each other. There was no good communication. So it's just, it's just so critical. What I find is that families tend to get in the circle of an action. Uh, number one, you started, I should have a plan for a succession. Number two, I go to a meeting or meet with a lawyer. Number three, this is giving me a headache. Oh, it's complicated. It's hard. I don't want to think about it. It's just too, it's just too much. And so then we go on to number four and you take no action at this time. And to be true on a succession plan, the no action part will take um, three years, three months to three years. It could take a long time. You could be sitting in that step number four on this circle of an action for a long time. So just do nothing. So you, and then at some point in time, you, you guilt yourself back into thinking, I got to have a plan and you go around again and get stuck at number four again. So be careful about that. The more appropriate way to do it is sequentially. 
I should have a plan or there's been a catastrophic event. I go to a meeting and meet with a lawyer. I family meets to explore options. You discuss with your family what you want to have done or happen. And options are picked and succession plans developed. Congratulations. How long is that going to take? Can you get that done in three days? No. Can you get that done in three weeks? Probably not. But you sure could do that in three months, three or four months. By Christmas, everybody could have a succession plan in place if you got after it and really stuck with it and, and, and slugged your way through it. You could have a succession plan put together. It's really important. Um, the second topic, that's, that's all I'm going to say about succession today. If you want to see all of my comments about succession, wait for the full video on this, for this program or go to my website. The second topic I need to talk about is communication. This is the communication need for farm families. Um, and whenever I have something that goes awry with a farm business, whether it's succession or whether it's a lease arrangement or landlord-tenant relationships, I don't know what the number is exactly, but it's well, well, well over half, like 85, 90% of the chance, 85 or 90% of the time, the problem we're having is bad communication or no communication. So that's what we have to do. Listening is the key to communication. Uh, the third bullet's the key to this slide. Uh, seek first to understand, then to be understood. We have to listen. If you don't, not, if you don't know how to listen well, then you go into a little practice session with, a, with somebody that you can talk to, your brother, your wife, your spouse, your husband, whoever that happens to be, and you repeat what you thought you heard them say and make sure that I understand you correctly, did you say this? And you make them do that to you to become a better listener. And because what we're goofing up on is we're not listening. We listen to think about what we want to say next. We don't listen to understand what they're saying now. Uh, we always come up with it. We're always trying to come up with the answer. We're always trying to come up with some kind of solution. You need to clarify what people are saying and ask them questions back. Did I hear you say that? Da, 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 da. Uh, and be sure you ask open-ended questions for clarification. How, why, did you pick, why did you choose to do that that way? Uh, who, who did you involve with this decision? How? How does that decision work going six months to the future? And start those kind of questions rather than, and avoid yes or no questions because um, that doesn't help. We have to have good, clear communication. And in order to do that, we have to be listening to what the other person says. You have to show empathy. We have to show concern. We have to focus on the intent. And we listen more when the emotion is high. You got to get to the heart of the issue. You feel you don't understand or when the other person doesn't when you feel that the other person doesn't understand, understand you, you don't talk louder, you don't talk more, you ask them more questions and get them to talk about where they're at. And if you can create empathy, if you can create, um, you know, that you to show that you trust, show that you're truly listening, then you have a better chance of them hearing your message. You have to, you have to go out of the way to establish the communication first. That's the only clear way to do it. The bottom line is we, we spend uh, all of our time, um, I, I know that it's happened with my children, it's happened with my spouse, that when they start describing something, I want to come up with a solution. I'm trying to listen to what they're saying, but I, I'm always thinking about what can happen next, how can I help them, what's, what the solution is, and uh, we have to listen, and we have to let them get their emotions out, we have to show them empathy, we have to true, truly demonstrate that we understand where they're coming from, that's the key to the communication. The other thing I want to talk about is succession communication. I want to talk about just a minute on the emergency farm planning because it kind of fits with all this. Uh, who's doing chores tonight if you're hospitalized this afternoon? Do we have that set? Do we know who that's going to be? Um, what's our emergency farm 
plan say for that? Maybe you should have something written down so if somebody has to come in and just take over, they know exactly what's going to happen. Who pays the bill the 20th, 20th of the month if you can't answer for yourself? If I end up uh, in, a, in a coma somewhere, uh, how are the bills going to get paid? Who takes care of that? Who knows where the stuff is at, like the keys to the safety deposit box, the spare keys to get into your house, the garage door codes, the garage door openers, who knows where the passcodes are to the bank accounts or the safety deposit box keys are, who knows where the other online passwords are if you're doing a whole bunch of work online. Where is this stuff at and where's our emergency plan to have this all kind of gathered in one spot? Um, do, does anyone know who your closest neighbors are that you work with and who what their phone numbers are, those kind of things? So if there was an emergency, we could call and, and get something set up and, and have them go do chores at least or, or take care of something or go check on things. And what is our emergency plan for all this? And if you had a fire or other emergency, well, where are the electrical disconnects on your farm? Where are the dangerous chemicals? Uh, where's the danger fuels stored? Where, how do we shut things off so we don't uh, exacerbate or make the fire worse? So those kind of things. Those are the emergency things we have to put together here. And I'm not going to spend any more time on this today, but I just wanted to, to at least mention this to people so you knew, so you can start thinking about if I had something bad happen to me all at once and I end up in a hospital, how's all this stuff gonna get taken care of and who's taking care of it and how's that? And so, so there's less stress if we have this kind of laid out and put it put into place. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about on my segment is some least considerations for 2021. And I'm not sure that this, change, this, this, this uh, list of considerations doesn't change a lot from year to year. But uh, let's go through a few things. So if I'm a landlord, how's the tenant helping you? Are they doing things like maintaining terraces and waterways? Are they taking control of all the weeds, including noxious weeds? Rolling your road ditch is kind of assumed, but are they doing it the, the way you want to have it done? Are they maintaining fences? Do you need to have fences maintained? Are there any fences there? Uh, are they maintaining an irrigation systems? Jim already kind of mentioned irrigation systems a couple of times. And if the tenant is helping with some of these things on this list, especially the rent, especially cash rent should be adjusted. You know, I think, I think they could get a credit for that. And just like Jim mentioned for their irrigation system, I think you get a credit for some of this other stuff too. If the tenant's doing a good job, let's recognize that tenant. Um, written leases are a must. Uh, termination notice, uh, time frame, this, uh, when, did, when the payment's gonna be made, uh, when do we want cell tests done, when, what do we expect for our cell tests, what do you expect them to say? Manure, control, manure application guidelines, are we gonna allow manure to come on our place every year or is that okay or not okay? What's our weed control expectations? What's our tillage expectations? Um, the, other thing I, the other thing I failed to mention here is that, is, that, is that I think that maybe the first conversation about a lease, especially a cash lease, ought not be about the cash rental rate. I know Jim started the program with cash rental rates and land values, but it ought to be about not the, what the rate is, it ought to be about how we're taking care of our ground. And are we getting the ground taken care of in a proper way? Because if, if you were looking at my work on succession, we don't all make it to the end, right? I said everybody's going to end up in the pine box. Well, the bottom line then is I don't, I've been to funerals, right? And no, no land is in the pine box. There's no tractors in the pine box. There's no cattle in the pine box. We're, there's just a body. And so we don't get to take it with us. What are we doing to make it a better asset? What are we doing? Because we don't get to take it. How are we going to make that better for the next generation so it's still productive farm ground for the people behind us that need land to grow the world's food? Um, 
So those are things to, to consider. Uh, also consider looking at rental lease rental clauses or lease clauses that that may be help with adjusting uh, some of the uh, some of the variable lease or, or the, the adjustable lease um, leases that Jim just got done talking about. How are we going to handle? How do we handle that with uh, disaster meaning to leading to low low yields? Uh, how do we handle the death of an operator, death of an owner? How is that going to be handled in a lease? Uh, how are we going to handle unusual yields and excessive normals or abnormally high uh, incomes per acre? Um, so how do we change and how are we going to handle control uh, changes in federal policy in the farm bill? Some of that can be discussed at least if not put into the lease. And I would also add, I'm not having, I don't have a slide in here on pastures, but I think pasture leases need to also think about the big three uh, disasters for pastures. How are you going to adjust the lease if there's a fire? How are you going to adjust the lease if there's hail? And how are you going to adjust the lease if there's a flooding or a, a fire, hail, and drought? Okay. And so how are those things going to be taken care of? So um, how are those leases going to be adjusted for pastures to take care of those things? So it's just some things to think about as you're writing a lease, as you're getting a lease prepared, how do I want to control all these things? I think that for, um, the other thing I think we should think about very carefully is that um, that the owner should be able to put the, okay, so I've got a lease that ended. I'm getting rid of my old tenant. I'm bringing a new tenant on. And I find out that my old tenant paid me cash rent, but he did, he mined the soil. Now I'm low in, I'm low in phosphorus, for instance. Owner probably should pay to bring that fertility for phosphorus back up to an accessible level. The tenant's not responsible to replace that nutrient used by someone else. And if the owner's unwilling to put that money in or doesn't want to put that money in, then the rental rates should be adjusted so that the, the new tenant can bring that phosphorus up to where it's supposed to be. And uh, we're, we're giving him credit for doing that. I, and I think the other thing has to be handled is we have to do that in a way that um, we have to do it in a way that protects the other party too. In other words, we get done with the lease, we gotta make sure that there's enough phosphorus there. However, if the tenant just put a bunch of phosphorus on, we should be willing to reimburse that uh, tenant for the phosphorus that they put on or for the lime that they put on. A lime, as I've said for at least 10 or 12 years now, should always be a landowner expense, but in some cases it's been shifted to the tenant. And if it has, then the, the tenant should get credit for the lime that they put on if they, if they break a lease and they don't get to use that lime, the value of that lime that was added to the soil. So, um, with that, I think I'm finished. A good communication again is uh, the relationships to all this, um, it, it, relationship to succession and relationship has everything to do with succession, has everything to do with landlord-tenant relationships. Uh, have a succession plan in place, get some emergency thoughts written down and, and put in a place people can find them. Write provisions equitably for all parties and more importantly than anything else, communication, just like I began, communication, communication, communication. And I've got a lot more uh, stuff in there on the full program that will be available. And Ryan asked you another poll question. So if you would vote there, we'd appreciate it. And there's no, is there any new questions that have come in? Uh, do I have sample loose leases including, uh, including these I, um, uh, okay. Sample leases including these items. I don't, but if, but we can, we can talk about that or ask Jim about that. Jim may have something or Austin may have something I don't have. We tend not to write leases because we're not lawyers. So we tend not to do that specific, but we can uh, do that. And then, um, and then the other thing is crop, why are crop insurance payments and government payments not considered as in a flex lease? Because 
in a flex lease, Jim can help me with that, but I, I think that in a flex lease, the, 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 um, the risk is still is assumed with the tenant more than the landlord, although the landlord's assuming some lease, some, some of the risk. Uh, probably a negotiable item, but I think that the, the overall uh, risk is still associated with the, with the tenant, not the landlord. I don't know so if anybody else wants to chime in on that, they're welcome to. And any other questions? Jim or, or Austin, you want to jump in on that? Jumping in on the lease question one, Ag Lease 101 is, is a great template to start with. If you go to that website, it'll have cash rent, it'll have share crop and give you the basic outline. And then it would be just a matter of, you know, if you've got you know, road dish maintenance you're wanting to add into the lease, it would just be, you know, adding that into a subsection to cover that. Yeah, Austin Talk, I just put it in the chat, agleese101.org is, uh, is the website that you can go to to pull up sample leases that include a lot of these uh, provisions that you need help. Okay, I'd say take it away, Austin. I'm not having luck moving the screen. There we go. So, so for my section, basically what we're gonna be doing is, um, I'm gonna cover some of the entities, grants, and some other information when you're talking about farmland management, specifically for this shortened presentation we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about conservation type work. So we're gonna be talking tile terraces, um, a little bit about waterways, seaback terraces, that kind of, you know, long-term maintenance, making sure that things are staying put in terms of erosion so you don't have nutrient problems later on. Um, I will go ahead and talk a little bit about the cost because I think, you know, going around talking to some individuals when I get into discussions on, you know, I need new terraces put in. I think the cost kind of jumps out and scares some people a little bit when you actually see the final number of what it's going to take to do this. And then the last two things, um, for those that are doing crop share agreements, we'll talk a little bit about ARC and PLC and try and understand that. And then there's a bit of a benefit if you're running to a beginning farmer. Um, so with each of these slides that I've got going, if you look in the bottom left and you'll be able to see these slides, once we get done, Ryan will put them up on the website as an archive. But on each of the slides that I've got, if there's a website or an entity that's tied to it that you need to refer to, if you're wanting to look at what programs are available in your area or who do I need to contact if I want to ask questions about putting in, you know, irrigation management, it'll give you the website and the entity that you need to contact and how to get a hold of them. Go ahead and take me to the next slide if you would, Alan. And so kind of the first major program that I kind of want to bring up is called the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. If you're talking to somebody from USDA or a farmer, usually they'll go ahead and use the 
abbreviation called EQIP. And these type of programs are more along the lines of, I'm wanting to start some sort of a new practice. It's not necessarily going in and putting in a new terrace. It's, you know, I'm wanting to switch and start trying to build up my soil quality. And so I want to start doing cover crops. And so what kind of programs are out there that are going to allow me to, you know, create wildlife habitat, reduce soil erosion, and, and build a better farm for the long term and increase the quality of the land that I've got. Go forward for me one. So with the EQIP program, the, the main focus when you're sitting there thinking about what kind of things are covered in this, you're gonna be looking at things like air and water quality, um, conservation of ground and surface water, reducing soil erosion, improving wildlife habitat. If, if those are the, you know, tie-ins or main focus to the practice you're wanting to look at, more than likely there's probably an equip program out there that will help you handle that and help you get involved in starting that kind of a practice. If you're wanting to look at a full list of what some of these implemented conservation practices are, this website that I've got on the link, and again, that'll be available afterwards in the presentation, but that link will take you to a list of the full practices in the state of Nebraska in terms of what's covered. And a lot of it is, you know, some quick examples, control basins for water sediment, you've got your terraces, um, residue and tillage management, filter strips and cover crops tend to be the major ones that a lot of people talk about. Go forward for me one, okay. So the number one thing whenever you're talking about signing up for a grant through the USDA and RCS on whether it's with this ECRIP program or later on we'll start talking a little bit about cost share is this is not a program where you want to go out and hire a dozer or hire an operator come out and start building something and then apply for the grant later. 100% if this is something that you're wanting financial assistance with, you need to start up that conversation and communicate with USDA and NRHCS first. Um, if you've already got a dozer parked on your ground and you started doing stuff, more than likely you're not gonna get, get the grant. Um, if you wanna do this properly and you wanna try and get the, the assistance, when you go in and you talk to NRCS and you explain what exactly you're wanting to do, what they're gonna ask is that you create a conservation activity plan. And to keep this as simple as possible, what you're talking about is, is you've got some sort of a practice you're wanting to adopt on your farm and they wanna know how it's gonna benefit and what are the costs that it's gonna to take to implement it. And based on the costs, that it's going to take to implement it, they'll base some sort of a payment plan based on that for financial assistance and approve it and help you get started with it. And so for instance, if I was wanting to get started doing cover crop, I might go through and start making a plan of, you know, I'm going to put down a cover crop after harvest in late October, early November. And I've already got a tractor and a seed drill, but come spring, I need to be able to terminate that cover crop. And so I need a crimp roller. And so part of my cap plan might include the purchase of a crimp roller 
and the cost of actually using that crimp roller and terminating the crop. And that might be something that go goes towards that payment estimation that NRCS uses. Um, the conservation assessment ranking tool called CART is how NRCS ranks all the programs that they're going to be funding. And so this is a little bit of a competitive situation where you might apply for some funding and actually get turned down. It just kind of depends on where their focus is on what exactly they're funding. Go ahead and take me forward one. So this kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of where the funding's been going in the past. And so this chart's looking specifically at cropland soil quality. And as you're going through it, nutrient management, um, residue tillage management, um, whether that's no-till or strip-till, cover crops, were kind of the big three in terms of where the funding were going. I would say mostly as we were looking at the 90s and maybe the late 2000 or early 2000s, you were seeing a lot of guys switch from doing the, you know, plow, disc, field cultivate, and then plant to no-till. And so back in the 90s and early 2000s, you were probably seeing a lot of guys applying for grants and asking for assistance and switching from that type of an operation, that type of practice to this new one. Now, there's been a heavy adoption up to that point and we're starting to see a little bit of a switch more towards, you know, cover crops are starting to become more and more of a thing that people are starting to get into and that's where the funding and money is starting to go. Go forward one. Um, again, this one's just looking at 2014 through 19, just zeroing in a little bit more on soil health and sustainability. A lot of funding is going in towards that cover crops that you know just shy of 40 percent of the funding that's available through this program is going towards getting cover crops set up helping people get started with getting the equipment and getting us getting it established and getting that built into their operation um, for those of you that have grazing land there are equip dollars for grazing land as well this isn't just something that row crop people can get a hold of um, a lot of times what you'll see prescribed grazing, water facilities, brush management, um, fencing and livestock piping, there's, there's a lot of options out there to the point where, you know, if you're wanting to set up an intensive grazing program where you're going to take 80 acres instead of having it be one great big pasture, break it down into 20 separate smaller fields and start moving the cattle more often, there might be some money out there to help you get the fencing, get set up to do that type of a plan. This is just one of those situations where communication, just as Al was talking about, is really key. You need to go in and you need to discuss with, you know, your USDA office and tell them what you're thinking about and what you're up to and ask them if there's any help that can be out there to help you get started in this. So the other program I kind of want to touch base on is cost share information. When you're looking at cost share, the big key with cost share information is the state of Nebraska is broken down into resource districts. And so this map on the screen kind of gives you an idea if you can pick out where your farm might be, which resource district you belong to. But for the information that I'm going to be using in the slides upcoming, I'm basically going to focus in on the little blue, which is South Central, Southeast Nebraska, along the state line and coming up a couple of counties. 
And so with each of these resource districts, they have their own website. And so for instance, like I said, we're gonna use a little blue NRD resource district. Um, you can go onto their website. They'll have information on when their board meetings are, um, projects and education that they've got going currently. And usually they will have some sort of a tab that will share the information on cost share that their particular resource district is going through. And so as we're looking on the website, you can see that they've got cost share for low angle sprinklers or drop nozzles for those that are wanting to switch and implement that into their operation as well as variable irrigation systems. Um, another one, and we'll look at this one on the next slide is complete soil health tests. And so if we go to the next slide and you look at it, basically what they'll do is for each one of the programs, they will outline what it is that program does and what it is that they're going to cover of it. And so for a complete soil health test, they're going to cover a Haney test, which basically when you're looking at a Haney test, you're looking at what your soil condition is, what the balance is, and what you can do to help your soil in your current farm. And of that soil test, what they're willing to do is they're going to cover $60 of it per composite sample up to $240 per producer per fiscal year. Um, as well as going onto the website, usually they will produce a, I call it a blue book, but it's a cost share book. And that will go through each one of these programs as well and outline what's going on. Again, one of the big factors that, you know, I can't stress enough, if you get a hold of one of these books or you go on the website, make sure you're looking at the correct NRD district. For instance, with this NC-1 terrace system, that is a little blue NRD district. And so if I live in the big blue NRD district, this one might not apply to me. Um, but each one of these books will outline, again, what the items are that are covered, what has to be met in terms of installation, and then the cost share of it, in this case, is the 60% of the average cost or actual cost up to 10 grand for a two-year period. So those have been pitching the idea that, you know, going out, talking to NRCS, figuring out what these grants are is an extremely important factor. But now I guess I'm going to kind of switch to the other foot and kind of give you a little bit of a different thought process. When you're talking to NRCS and you're talking to them about signing up for some of these grants, their main focus is water, air quality, wildlife habitat, the things that we talked about in that third or fourth slide. They are not necessarily concerned about the farmability of the ground. And so what do I mean about farmability of the ground? It's kind of like trying to take a square hole and ramming it through a circle. I mean, it's, it's just not going to work. Modern farm equipment has gotten extremely large. Um, you know, when I first started out with mom and dad and I was just a little tyke only up to their knees, we were running four row corn planters. And then we upgraded to six row corn planters and I thought that was just massive. And now as I'm driving around, there's a lot of guys running around with 24 row corn planters up here in the hills in Eastern Nebraska that equipment doesn't necessarily lend itself to some of the structures that might get built in accordance to NRCS specs. The, the slope of the terrace, the backside slope and the grade, 
um, where the riser placement is might all be kind of prohibited when you're sitting there looking at a combine with a 30, 40 foot flex head or a draper head trying to harvest soybeans because it's just not going to be able to fit that contour. And so while some of these grants might be a great thing in terms of getting something started, I don't necessarily want you to run out and just focus on I'm going to use the grant money and only the grant money because you might be limiting the market in terms of people willing to rent your ground just because they know they won't be able to get their equipment in there. Um, another factor that I'll point out is that I'm driving around, they're starting to get to be less and less, but for instance, when you look at some structures like steep back terraces, the least consideration that you need to be putting in there is the care and maintenance of the steep back terrace. Terraces should be lasting 30, 40 years, but if you've got guys running um, sprayer equipment with 100-foot booms on a windy day and they're killing the brome stand on the backside of the terrace, if you don't have that grass structure to hold that soil in place, it's going to start degrading to the point where you're going to have to do repairs in maybe 15 or 20 years. And so you definitely want to, you know, care for your, care for your land and care for your structures and it will keep things in a stable condition that's appealing to farmers and tenants as you go through and try and rent. Go to the next slide for me. Um, I kind of mentioned a little bit about cost and I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into that right now. Just so you've kind of got an idea for heavy machinery work and I'm talking dozer and excavator, you're going to be somewhere in the ballpark of around $160 per hour. And that's going to cover the machine, the fuel, and the operator. Um, prices can go north and south of that depending on, you know, if you've got a guy that's got a brand new 850L John Deere dozer, he can get a lot more work done than somebody that's got a 750B. The size of the equipment, the age of the equipment does make a difference. And so some of those prices may go up or down based on what they're running with. But what that number did not cover is it does not cover if you're putting in tile and risers or you're putting in rock drains, that's all additional costs that need to be factored in when you're starting to look at, you know, do I want to go and convert this farm over? For those of you that are crop share or still farming, these costs can be expensed on your taxes using your Schedule F, but you're going to be limited to 25% of your gross farm income in any one given year. And so if I've got a $30,000 expense and my 25% gross farm income won't allow for $30,000 in one year, I can take maybe $15,000 of it in the first year and then the remainder fifteen will have to get carried forward into future years. And so maybe I can use it in the year after and it might take me two. It just depends. If you've got questions on this, and this is another one of those I would highly recommend moments, if you're looking at plugging fifty, sixty thousand dollars into a farm for conservation work, you might want to go talk to your tax preparer and let them know what you're thinking about doing, so they have a general idea of what to plan on and what to prepare for, and they might have some advice for you on how to handle it. So here's just a quick example, and this is one of the farms that our operation has, and so we've got some old waterways. It's about 3,700 feet. You've got the question of, do you want to repair or do you want to tile? Um, a lot of guys don't necessarily like waterways anymore. 
If you're looking at tiling it, you are going to gain some acres. It's not much. In the case that we've got here, you know, you're looking at maybe gaining two acres. But if you take two acres at 200 bushel an acre corn at 350 a bushel for 20 years, that's $28,000. And that's a, you know, over the long run, it's a hefty chunk of change that'll help pay for some of these costs of putting the tile and the risers in. Um, if you're going to tile, you're going to have to fill in the waterway and you're going to have to connect the terraces. And so that's probably going to be around 2,500 feet. For this example, I said you easily will likely be looking at $30,000 plus. I'm going to give you a couple of other numbers that you can kind of use and maybe help you if you're trying to figure out your own place. In general, you're probably going to be looking at $275 per riser. And so at each one of the terraces that the waterway is cutting through, you're going to put a riser in. Each one of those is going to be $275. And we're talking about just for the es excavator and trenching. This isn't for the bulldozing. That's just for the excavator and trenching to put the tile line in. Um, the tile is probably going to be around $5.50 a foot, and that's for 6 to 10-inch tile. So the dozer work on top of that. You're going to be looking at $330 per riser to connect the terrace, or about $3 per foot for the dozer work. If you're wanting a simple number that's going to get you in the ballpark, and when I say ballpark, I'm talking a huge ballpark, but if you're wanting a simple number to get you started to kind of give you an idea of what this might possibly cost, to tile and terrace the farm, generally, if you take how many acres you have times $700 an acre, that's going to give you around an idea of what it's going to cost. So if I've got an 80-acre farm and I'm wanting to go in and tile and terrace it, be expecting to pay somewhere in the realm of $56,000 to get the job done. That's just what it's going to end up costing when you're all said and done. Go to the next slide for me. Um, so kind of the big point that I want to point out is tile and terraces have a long lifespan. You know, these things are going to last long for you. They're going to keep your water controlled to the point where you don't have erosion. You're not losing your um, soil nutrients. But at some point in time, they are going to need repaired. And just like hailstorms go through and ruin um, roofs and shingles on houses, on rental houses, and you've got to go in and replace it. You know, in southeast Nebraska two years ago, we got one of those fantastic five-inch rains in one hour. And tile lines and terraces are not built to handle that. And so you're going to have, you know, tile lines blown out. You're going to have covered risers. You're going to have terraces that went and cut over the top. And you're going to have repair work. And so when you're looking at going in and cash renter or crop sharing, one thing that I highly recommend is, you know, you're going to have your real estate taxes and you need to cover that. But I would highly recommend that you probably need to start a slush fund and say maybe $2,000, $3,000 every year is going to go into this slush fund, knowing that, you know, sometime in the next 15, 20 years, I'm going to have a $30,000, $50,000 expense to get the terraces and everything lined up, whether that be through some storm or they just got worn out. Go to the next slide for me. Okay, so with those of you that are looking at sharecropping, one thing that you need to be aware of, and this is switching back into that USDA portion 
type information is under the farm bill, there's what's called the ARC and the PLC program. And what these are doing is they're covering a financial protection for farmers from substantial drops. And so under ARC, it's a revenue-based calculation. Under PLC, it's a price-based calculation. But what they're both trying to do is they're essentially trying to help protect the grower from substantial changes in risk. And so if you're a cash rent landowner, you won't have to worry about this. But for those of you that are share crop, this would probably be one of those things that I would add into my agenda for if I'm gonna go meet with the farmer in December or January and talk about the upcoming you know, crop year, this probably needs to be added into that conversation of R versus PLC which program is going to fit our farm operation best based on the county we're operating in and our production levels and where we think the market's going. Um, starting in 2021, this ARC PLC program is an annual election. Go to the next slide for me. Um, two of the tools out there, if you do want to sit down and talk to somebody about, you know, ARC PLC, which one's better for my operation, Texas A&M and Illinois both have fantastic tools out there that will help guide you through the process of doing a um, analysis of both programs based on your expectations of market price and yield. It can give you an idea of based on those assumptions, what could you expect under both the programs. Um, both Jim and myself are available if you've got questions on you know, how the Texas A&M program works. If you need somebody to help walk you through it, we can help you with that. But those two things are, you know, as we go into this annual election situation might be something you'll want to start taking a look at. The last thing that I want to bring up is, you know, going back to that renting ground again, there is a benefit, a tax credit, for those that are renting ground to beginning farmers in the state of Nebraska. It's run through the Nebraska Department of Agriculture. And for the landowner, what it's going to do for you, it's going to give you a refundable tax credit for renting to that eligible beginning farmer for a minimum of three years. You're either going to get 10% of the cash rent for each of three years, or you're going to get 15% of the value of the share crop rent for each of the three years. The beginning farmer in this situation, first and foremost, they're going to be able to rent the ground for three years. So they're going to be ecstatic about that. They're also getting tax exemption on their personal property in the amount of $100,000. And that'll be running through your local assessor office. And then there's a tax credit reimbursement for any financial management courses they might have to take under the program. And so those are, again, this is kind of the brief, short agenda version of what this conversation is going to be in the long run, but it kind of gives you an idea of what we'll be talking about when we're talking about the grants and kind of the costs of some of this stuff. So with that, I think we probably got one more poll question. Yeah, Austin, if you, as, uh, yeah, if you want to answer the poll question there, that'd be great. And what, I got a question here that I've been monitoring uh, while you've been uh, going over your information, Austin. Uh, it kind of pertained a little bit more to what you covered earlier on. 
And the question that was asked is, do we have any uh, statistics on how often equip and CSP get used? Uh, the person stated that they didn't think they were used very often. Uh, are they correct in thinking that? Uh, what are what are you seeing, or what do you have to offer on that topic? I I don't have a specific like percentage number, but I would probably agree with the comment that they're probably not used very often. Um, some of it's just a situation of they don't necessarily want to go through the paperwork, and and there are you know, audit systems that might pop up and you're going to have an annual report that you have to turn in that a lot of guys don't want to necessarily mess with. But I do see, for instance, a couple of years ago, one of the, um, not the EQIP one, but the CSP programs, there was the high tunnel greenhouses. And I saw a lot of high tunnel greenhouses going up. Not the and that would be for vegetable garden production and that's sure. that sort of thing. So it, it does get used. It's just a matter of, you know, a lot of it's going on the website and seeing what the programs are. So, you know, what is and isn't covered because a lot of times a lot, what ends up happening is you start a project and it's too late to apply for it at that point, And then you find out about it. Yeah. I think I've seen a study coming out of Iowa. They're talking is on the topic of cover crop. And it seemed to me in recent years, the equip program was fairly popular in Iowa with respects to the use of cost share or cost coverage on uh, cover crops at the state. And it may be popular in certain areas of the state where we have nitrates in the water and people are looking to, you know, offset some of those things. And, uh, another question that we had come in, it's not specifically what you talked on, but um, it gets along the ideas of some of these things where you're talking about having to cover expenses over a long period of time. Uh, this individual has a pivot out in southwest Nebraska. It's quite old and uh, it leases their land out to someone else. And they're wondering if it's worth it to replace a pivot versus changing the farm back to dry land. Uh, do you have any ideas on how you would kind of think through that? First of all, if I, I would definitely take a look and see what exactly it is the difference between dry land rent versus irrigated rent is going to be. And I think that probably is going to be a pretty good tell right off the bat in terms of which way, you know, personally I would lean when you're looking at that situation. Um, do you know of specific, I'm trying to think of a specific resource, Al? Well, my, my thought is you have to, I'd like to know, I mean, I don't want to know, but it depends on the age of the, it depends on the age of the landowner. If you, if you're young enough and you're going to be able to put uh, that money into a pivot and get that reinvestment back, that's one thing. But if you're relatively older, uh, will you get the money back on the investments you make into a new pivot? That's the, that's the key question. And, and, and quite honestly, the other thing that you have to consider is that there's been a fair number of people having some success with taking uh, use pivots and repurposing them back into the farmland and not having to buy a brand new one. To, 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 uh, and, and depending on what this, the condition of that use pivot is, you may be able to get away with it and maybe you won't get, be able to get away with it. That's kind of up to everybody's uh, thought on that. I mean, everybody has a little bit different feel about that. But, uh, and, and if, you're, if you're older and you don't want to put that kind of investment in, you can, you can also maybe, if you have a long-term relationship with a tenant, uh, you may want to let them go ahead and, and put the pivot on and then discount their rent. 
based on what that pivot's worth. Jimmy, what, what's your thoughts, Jim? Key part of that I've had asked this individual when you guys were talking, I asked the two questions that stood out was, where's it located? Well, I said Southwest Nebraska. And as we know, there's certain areas of that part of the state that have issues with water. The couple things I'd want to know, how good of a well or water supply do you have? And if you're pumping out of a stream or whatever, I mean, how high, how high on the chain are your water rights? Are you always getting cut off or not? Uh, if you're in an area where you don't have a lot of water or the regulations are getting pretty tough to do stuff under, there are certain areas of the state where the natural resource districts are buying out the water rights to the property if that's a route that you'd want to go. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying be aware of that. But assuming, you know, you're a young or younger, you're not 80, 80 plus, but maybe in your 50s, Alan's comments and Austin's comments, I think, hold pretty true. Uh, you know, uh, pivots, there are ways to get used ones, start making phone calls to irrigation companies. Maybe you don't get one right away, but maybe they can pull something off another parcel and stick it on yours or whatever. I mean, just start asking around. I don't know what pivots cost exactly now, but, you know, 75 on up, assembled and all that on your site. I, I'd evaluate the water rights and uh, how good of a water supply do you have? Typically, the differential Austin was talking about between uh, dry land versus irrigated usually supports it, maintaining it as irrigated, but also, as I said, southwest Nebraska has got some challenges. Um, got a question here. So we're just going to kind of open it up for Q&A, and I'll try to monitor these. Uh, let's finish up with a question that came in for you, Austin. Where can I find more information on the beginning farmer tax credit? And what does it take to qualify? And you can provide your answer. And maybe if you find the link to that, you could post it on uh, either you or Austin could post it in the chat box as a response. Might be a good way to send the link that way. So I, I just let me let me handle that first. If Austin has more thoughts, you can let me let you know. But I work with people on beginning farmer tax credit all the time, and you have to get on that right away. You go, you just do a next gen Nebraska, N E X T G E N Nebraska search with Google. And it'll pop up. It's the Nebraska Department of Ag website. And there's an application deadline. Do you remember? Is it November 1st or December 1st? You have to apply it's, to get it's that in November. for the next year. Yeah. November 1st, I think. So you have a couple of months. Uh, you got a month and a half left. So uh, you make sure you get that deadline covered for the 21 crop. And uh, it's at NextGen Nebraska is where you get more information. That's the website. Don't be afraid to call their number. Carla mm -hmm. is the administrator for that. She does a great job and has great. Yeah, she's, she's a good person to talk to. She's very, very friendly. Anything else, Austin, on it? Those would be my main comments on it is make, you know, that next gen Nebraska is definitely the starting point to get it going on it. So, so Jim, there was a question, how's, how's yield determined? I think we're referring to when you're doing a, maybe a flex lease, I'm not sure. But the, but, the, but the yield would be just, uh, you could use APH, right? Yeah, so. You could use actual yield. Well, your actual production history is supposed to be the actual yield that was reported with respect to the year it was raised in. So uh, a lot of people have crop insurance on their property, so they may take a look at the yields that were used in the um, crop insurance yield history. And the final yield that is used on the property might be what is reported. Um, Austin or Alan, this one's for you. But I don't have to answer. Not sure what to, where to submit this. Um, with respects to the uh, property that's being leased out, 
On the topic of political signs on farmland, can a tenant post for a particular candidate without the permission of a landlord? Austin, I think that one's got you on it. Uh, so, well, I'm just going to throw out a, you know, this is prior experience that our operation had with the landlord. The One of the county 4-H groups wanted to post a sign because the, the farm we had was right on the county line and they wanted to say, welcome to X County from your local 4-H group. And that's something that personally we refer to the landlord because, you know, they own the ground we're renting it, but that's a sign that, you know, we didn't necessarily want to touch in terms of saying yes or no to, you know, it, if it's going to be a problem, I would probably say maybe that just needs to be something that's added into your written lease that, you know, no advertisement signs will be posted on the property without prior written, you know, acknowledgement from the landlord. Because, you know, there's from no hunting signs to no trespassing to whether it's, you know, maybe one of the state senators or the president, it it does create a situation where you might come into some turmoil. The only caveat I would throw in there is, it, I don't know what kind of lease it is. Is it a cash lease or is it a crop share lease? If it's a crop share lease, then absolutely the landlord gets to participate in that decision. If it's a cash lease, that's a little more ambiguity. You know, then it's a little more uncertain because the cash lease says, I get, I, as a tenant, I get to use that land for 12 months. Uh, but I'm not sure uh, uh, that I wouldn't, uh, I still want to get permission from the landlord to post a political sign. And I think that a, a good tenant or a smart tenant if they get asked by the landlord to remove the sign, we'll be removing the sign because they want to keep the lease, I would assume. That, that you know, so I, I is, can answer is that it, specifically, but I think you have to be really careful. We don't usually see it on ag land so much, but there are cases re with respect to like uh, dormitories on campus, um, apartments in towns, uh, people hanging stuff up in their windows. Uh, when I was in college, it just had a strict no, nothing in the windows, period. It didn't matter what it was for or against or whatever, there's nothing in the windows. Um, on the topic of the pivot, kind of a follow-up question, I'm going to jump back to the chat where there were some questions. Is it better to have the landlord, for the landlord to upgrade the pivot or have the tenant provide it? So on the topic of, a, again, old pivot out in a, on a parcel of ground, is it better to have the landlord replace it or is it better to have the tenant replace it? And I think Alan kind of partially answered this maybe already, but do you two want to comment on that? You know, me personally, I would, as a landlord, I would rather own the asset because anytime it, it, it's going to be a deal every time you switch tenants, if the tenant owns the irrigation system and then tearing it down, next person's got to bring one in. I can charge more money with rent. The land's got a higher value if I go to sell it, if I own it. I'd rather just have the equipment myself, personally. You can swing it financially. I agree with Austin. Absolutely correct. Once the landlord can swing it somehow financially and have enough years left to get their investment back, I think you own your... That's, that's, that's the other comment I would make, okay, let's say you have a landowner that's in an advanced stage. Who stands to inherit it? that person, do they intend to own it for a lifetime so there would be some kind of recovery over their lifetime? Or even if they don't intend to own it after the primary landowner is gone, imagine selling a, an irrigated parcel of land that the current tenant operates on, but the landlord and the tenant can't settle on the price so it goes up to auction. It kind of creates a mess then. 
Um, scrolling through the other chat questions, I guess the other one that was asked, um, I had a slide that said on it that we do not account for crop insurance indemnity payments or government program payments are not considered in a flex lease. My answer to that question is why is that? The reason we say that is that way is because according to the regulations published by the USDA as well as crop insurance companies, you must materially participate in the lease to be able to receive uh, some of those type of payments. What is meant by that is you basically have to be on a crop share. If you're on a 50-50 crop share paying a portion of the seed fertilizer or chemical expenses, you'd be entitled to receive half of that payment. Uh, it's, a, it's a regulation and it's published by USDA that way. Um, you know, I, I think we've got just about all the questions that came in. I'm not seeing anything else. I apologize if we missed it. This has really been a good hour and a half and we're basically wrapped up now, but uh, I've, I've been very impressed by the number of questions that come in. We haven't ever had anything like this where we had this many come in. So, and they were really good ones. But uh, with that being said, I don't, um, there any other questions? You, Austin, Alan, do you guys have any comments you want to say before we close this There's out? There's one question in chat that said, back to the segment, who determines yields and how are they verified to share acreage numbers? Well, I mean, so uh, I, my blank take is usually you have to report your yield to, to USDA, to the FSA office, and you're not going to under-report because that messes up your insurance for the next year. You're not going to over-report, obviously, either necessarily. You're not going to be, oh, so I think a lot of people do that pretty straight up. So I, I would just. Um, and what's the number that gets reported to crop insurance? Go ahead, Jim. Well, the, the yield that gets reported to crop insurance, if an operator is not reporting, um, if they're blatantly inflating or deflating a yield that's reported to crop insurance, you can get in big trouble. So I'm, I'm talking like losing the ability to purchase crop insurance for multiple years out. And if you're not buying crop insurance in the era that we're in right now, I don't think you're operating on rented ground. So uh, our presentations will be posted online, uh, farm.unl.edu backslash webinars. Ryan Murray beat me to it. Uh, give us, give us uh, three or four business days. We'll get these uh, slides up. We'll also get uh, our entire presentations up where Alan, Austin, and I, where we're not on the fly trying to talk and hopefully it's yeah, pretty good quality. But anyways, if you have any comments, send any of us an email. Let us know the good, the bad, or the ugly from what we did today. And we're trying these things new. This is definitely a new way of doing things. We usually like to do in-person stuff. But uh, given the circumstances where we're at right now, this is what we're tied to. So Call or, call or email any of us. We'll be glad to try and help. Yep. We'll refer to somebody else. Yeah. Oh, we got one question. Let's see here. Uh, can you repeat the site where these are located? It is uh, farm.unl.edu backslash webinars. Let me see if I can. Um, oops, looks like it's in. So we'll, uh, looks like Alan got me that answer already. Okay, uh, let's see. Thank you. All right. Okay, with that, we're uh, going to kill the recording here now, and we appreciate everyone for staying on. We had good numbers throughout the entire thing, so very good. Thanks, Austin Allen. This has been a special Nebraska Farmcast presentation of Extension Farm and Ranch Management in the Department of Agricultural Economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. 
to view or listen to more archived webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications to guide your decision-making, visit farm.unl.edu.